Welcome to the Energy Environment Economy Podcast, a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. I'm Ann Geisinger, Executive Director at EBC, and I'll be your host for this episode. Here at Energy Environment Economy, we talk about the business of the environment, from solid waste management to stormwater, brownfields redevelopment, offshore wind, the list goes on. Today is a special episode. I have a co-host for today. Um, it's brought to you by EBC's summer intern, Anna Wilcox. She is class of 2025 at the University of California, Berkeley, and she supported the podcast throughout the summer as part of the internship, brainstorming potential future guests like our guests for today. When she reached out to see if Freight Farms was interested in being on the podcast, they said yes, which is fantastic. So I appreciate that they got back to our intern. Thank you, Anna, for pulling this together and for joining me as a co-host for today. Yeah, of course. So I'm Anna. I worked in the freight farms beginning my eighth grade year until COVID hit, which was my junior year. I worked in the prototype of freight farms. So the stuff we'll be talking about today isn't necessarily applicable to my experiences, but I'm excited to kind of hear about how the farm has evolved. That's cool. I'm, I was super interested to hear that you did that. And um, what kind of work were you doing at the time? What did they have the students do? Yeah, so my high school had everyone uh, complete volunteer hours. And one of the ways you could do that was you could work in like great farms, which is located right next to our school cafeteria. And you were basically like planting seedlings and just uh, harvesting and all that. It was a lot of it was kind of run by itself, as uh, Caroline will tell you, um, with like the whole water system, nutrient system and everything. But it was just cool to be able to kind of discover like different species of like uh, plants and stuff that um, that was like that was that was super healthy to eat and that I didn't really like know about. Very cool. So Anna and I are here together um, with Freight Farms Director of Marketing, Caroline Katsarubis. So welcome to you and thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. I appreciate it. So let's just start off with a little bit about Freight Farms. How did it get started? What's the mission? What's your scope? So what Freight Farms is most well known for is our container farms, which Anna was mentioning. Um, she worked in at Boston Latin School, which had our one of our first farms that we released in 2013. Um, I also am a BLS alum, so that is why I agreed to this podcast. I probably would have done it anyway, but oh, that's so great! Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. Yes. Um, so yeah, so we're known for our container farms. Um, and these are modular vertical hydroponic farms uh, that are built entirely inside 40-foot shipping containers. They can go anywhere in the world uh, and grow fresh local produce 365 days a year, which is pretty incredible. And just as a company, we're um, focused on building accessible modular vertical farming technology that empowers people to grow fresh produce produce wherever they are and whatever their background um, is. You know, we believe vertical farming shouldn't be this um, kind of far-fetched novelty that's inaccessible to the general public. So so what we do is we um, we try and make it as accessible as possible. It's a powerful tool for food production, and we want it in the hands of as many people as possible. So that kind of uh, has always been our our north star um, since the company's inception in about 2012, um, and it all started about democratizing access to fresh produce. Uh, the the company actually really started at BLS because 
um, our co-founders were working together around a rooftop greenhouse project that they were doing for the school. Uh, you know, they really saw the importance and the need for urban agriculture to emerge as um, this like viable uh, and competitive option within the food landscape. But if anyone's familiar with Boston's um, architecture, it is very, very variable, very historic, very old, and presents a lot of challenges. So that challenge actually helped them pivot to the idea of uh, kind of putting all the technology that was available in the ag tech space into a really modular uniform envelope that ended up being the shipping container. We might need a few definitions. What is hydroponics and what is vertical farming? Sure. So hydroponics is the method of growing food without soil. So it is completely soilless. You are dissolving the nutrients into the water and the plants take up the nutrients via their roots that are either submerged in the water or have um, a varying water cycle where it's like watering them for 30 seconds on and then like an hour off. So they're always receiving all of the key nutrients. Uh, very water efficient hydroponics is in general. Our systems uh, use about 99% less water than traditional farming. That's probably only about five gallons of water per day to grow a few thousand crops in that 320 square foot box. Vertical that is farming. Incredible. Wow. <laughs> yes. That is definitely one of the biggest uh, sustainability metrics that we can point to as a company and uh, for hydroponics as a whole. And then vertical farming is kind of exactly what it sounds like. You, you farm on the vertical plane. Um, and it's just a way to maximize the space that you are growing in, especially in urban environments or tight spaces. You grow up instead of growing out. That is really fascinating. I'm curious to know why would you not want to use soil? I know you're in a container, but is there a reason why soil doesn't make sense for this kind of farming? That is a really good question. You know, I think it's it goes just back to hydroponics and the the benefits of hydroponics, um, especially in small spaces. It allows you to maximize that space um, and all of the other systems that we have running that Anna was alluding to, the watering cycles. There are a lot of pumps to make things work um, and soil would clog the pumps, soil would clog the emitters. Uh, so it's just a little bit more efficient for our particular method of growing. Um, kind of curious about like, is there, these are all built in like shipping containers and is it, is there, have you ever looked into kind of making the shipping containers more like energy, like efficient with like solar panels or something to really try to like maximize everything to make sure it's all uh, green? Absolutely. Um, so energy efficiency is definitely one of the bigger pain points of indoor farming in general. Um, you know, you're not utilizing the power of the sun because it's a controlled environment. It's completely closed off to the outside climate. We do fortunately have multiple customers who are utilizing solar to power their operations. Um, we do not currently offer that as something that someone can purchase, but it's absolutely compatible with our systems. Um, you would definitely need a bit more space than the actual 320 square foot uh, footprint of the farm. You would likely need, I believe we've said maybe 
like three to four times the square footage of the actual farm to cover all of the electrical needs. And then you would obviously want some sort of battery to be capturing um, all of the electricity produced. So how has the efficiency of the farms like increased from like the prototype to like the farm you're at now? And what has kind of uh, been the driving factors into like increasing the efficiency and like changing the technologies of like uh, your newest farms? That is a really good question. And while our farms that we sell today are more energy intensive than the farm that you were operating while you were at Boston Latin, there have been multiple more efficiencies that we've taken into consideration. So our design and hardware teams and even our plant science team focus on an acronym that we call YEL, and that is yield, efficiency, and labor. So we're always thinking about those three components um, and how do we how do we increase yield, how do we increase efficiency, and how do we decrease labor? And kind of all of those things are playing into the energy or the efficiency of the entire container. One thing in particular that is going to be driving up electricity costs or electricity usage would be our LED lights. And you're familiar with the LED lights. So this is how we supplement the sun. It's that like red and blue LED lights that kind of create this blurple, kind of looks like a disco, um, super fun in there when those are on. Uh, so those LEDs have come a long way even over the past 10 years uh, with efficiency. So even though our intensity of light has increased, the overall um, kind of LED technology has become way more efficient. So our LEDs are more intensive, which means that we can actually get more yields out of the entire farm. So our yields outputs have, I'm trying to think of our first iteration, I would assume at its max capacity, you would be harvesting probably about 400 to 500 heads per week in the earlier iterations. Um, in the same time span, you can be harvesting about 950 to 1,000 heads of lettuce today in today's farms. But like I mentioned, energy is always kind of a pain point uh, for indoor farming. So it's always something that we are trying to drive down. And another way that we do that is with our crop science team. Um, there are a lot of different variables that really go into your energy costs. That could be anything from the crops that you're growing, how you're growing them, uh, the outside environment, and the inside humidity levels. If you're growing a crop that is bigger and bushier, it has a tendency to transpire more especially if you're not supplementing the air with CO2. So the plants tend to then breathe a little bit heavier. And when they're breathing, they're transpiring, the air gets more humid. And then the dehumidifier has to work a lot more intense and that will drive up your energy. Um, so if you're supplementing with CO2, not only are you increasing yields, um, but you're also decreasing humidity and therefore reducing your overall energy. So there are a lot of different things that we can kind of play with either from the kind of plant science side, and then also the hardware side to do as much as we possibly can to reduce the energy intensity. 
that was a really long-winded answer. I hope that made made sense. (laughs) That's okay. The complexity level within a container farm is very high. I had considered the energy intensity of energy usage of, of lights. And I thought maybe there'd be some sort of like climates, you know, fans or something, but forgetting that, of course, it's a closed box. So then if the plants are transpiring, they're creating their own humidity and you got to figure out what to do with that. And you might not want that humidity. There is a lot going on in there that you need to think about. And all of it's using energy. It sounds also like there are a lot of systems in there that are somewhat automated. And so are you, is this where the words ag tech come into play? Because it's all over the website. We're part of the ag tech world. And sounds like you need basically to have, you know, a huge computer to operate these things. So, you know, ag tech is basically just the application of technology within the agriculture sector. It's definitely not new, but it sure has evolved more recently. Uh, Just like in a little anecdote from my early years at Freight Farms, uh, when I used to work in more of like the PR department, um, we had received this round of investment funding and I I was pitching a tech publication that will not be named. And I was explaining, you know, Freight Farms is in the ag tech sector, and we just received this funding. And the reporter came back to me and they're like, what is ag tech? Like, we do not cover ag tech. I don't even know what that is. Now, fast forward to today that that national publication has an entire vertical within uh, that is completely dedicated to ag tech. So it's, (laughs) it's come a long way. But yes, there there is a lot that goes into the farm. Um, and if you remember when I was talking about the mission of freight farms, we want to make it as accessible as possible. So you don't need you know a super green thumb or a background in agriculture or even a background in like technology to operate this. So we have created and um, multiple automation systems within uh, the entire farm that run through our proprietary software called Farmhand. So this does everything like control the lights, the watering, the CO2, um, when things turn on and off, something is, everything as basic is just running the right recipe to grow whatever crop that you're growing. Um, And then it does so many other things that, that we can go into, like creating task lists for you, which Anna, you probably would have loved when you were working at BLS instead of writing them on a whiteboard. And it also tracks like who goes in there, who does what, who turns things on and off uh, so that the farmer themselves just have to focus on a few key things. And that's seeding, which Anna did, transplanting, harvesting, and then you're like cleaning and maintenance um, throughout the farm. So we do as much as humanly possible to remove as much of the labor as possible through that ag tech and automation. So Anna probably knows the answer to this question. Are you growing one crop at a time or are you growing multiple things in there? What was your experience, Anna? Oh, we were definitely growing multiple crops in yeah. there. Yeah. Kind of whatever like students were interested in. Yeah. There's definitely like limits to what you can grow, but there's like so much, uh, like we grew lots of like lettuces and herbs were like probably most popular um, at my farm, but yeah. So Carolyn, is- what's your experience, right? With, um, some of your customers, is it is it kind of a typical array of things? Do people go off the wall sometimes and grow interesting stuff? Yes and yes. Uh, we do have a lot of farmers that grow a wide variety of crops and then some that basically monocrop their entire farm. It is highly dependent on their market and who they're selling to and, and what they want. Um, lettuces, leafy greens, herb, 
small root veg vegetables um, and even some flowering crops uh, do spectacular inside the farm. That's kind of what it's optimized for smaller, high turnover crops that you can be uh, constantly harvesting out of the farm. But we have folks that are growing some really out there things. One of my favorite would be this crop called a buzz button. And this is, I believe, historically called the toothache plant. Um, and it is, it looks like a flower. It grows kind of like a, a big bushy flower. And there are these really bright neon yellow, like little fuzzy, they look like, uh, they look like gumdrops, truly. Uh, just gum, yellow, fuzzy gumdrops. Okay. And uh, when you eat them, it ha it totally transforms what's going on in your mouth. It's kind of like a pop rocks situation. There's a lot of fizzing. Your mouth might sal over salivate, go a little numb. Uh, it's like, yeah, it's a, it's a medicinal plant, but there are a lot of different applications in today's, you know, modern market where they might sell them to um, like a specialty cocktail restaurant uh, where they are kind of shaving the buzz button on top of um, some sort of beverage and it, and it manipulates the flavor of the drink. So people can, people can get very creative with what that they is a very interesting plant. Um, never heard of that. So we will be linking to that in the show notes so people can see what in the world we're talking about. <laughs> Great. Um, we've talked a lot about energy usage. We've talked a little bit about energy efficiency and, and sort of the, the constraints of having this high energy input um, container farm because it's all in, in the same place. But how are we addressing water management? Because now you, you're basically using a bunch of water. That's how you're growing these plants. There must be wastewater. You must have to get a water input. How is that all managed? Yeah, absolutely. So like I mentioned in the beginning, hydroponics is very water efficient. So while we have a few hundred gallon tanks inside the farm, you're not using all of that water every single day. You're only, it really actually depends again, like on your outside environment um, and that humidity inside the farm. So if you're running in a very humid climate and you're reclaiming that water, we actually filter that water and put it back into the tanks. So some places are actually growing water positive as opposed to water negative. So it's a closed loop system. So when plants get watered, once the water runs over the roots, it goes back into the tank. The water in the tank is monitored and redosed with nutrients if there's any sort of deficiency. So again, closed loop, very efficient. Um, we will absolutely recommend you turn over your water because you want at over, you know, over the course of a month or two months, your nutrients are going to become imbalanced because certain plants are going to be, you know, hogging calcium and then there's a calcium imbalance. So you'll want to turn over that water and you can absolutely reuse that water for other types of gardening purposes. We've, we've had it tested and you can either water a lawn or if you have an outdoor garden um, and then you absolutely just want to, if you are just dumping it, you'd want to check with your municipality just to make sure that that's okay. As for inputs, if you have a water connection, it can just be like a standard garden hose. We do ask that you test your water beforehand so we can coordinate with our farmers. Um, and then we help them read the results and then advise if they need some sort of like RO filter um, or any other type of filter uh, before they start growing. Or if you don't have a water connection, you can always just use like, um, you can use a water service or you can have like those big water totes outside your farm 
Uh, that's what we do at our headquarters here in Boston because we don't have a water connection. So we just have a service that comes and fills those every once in a while. Because it's so water efficient, it it sounds like it can be, you know, around the world, it doesn't really matter where you are, you can get away with, for a better lack of a better way to say it, um, really limited water usage in places that where water might be really important to be conserving. So completely. And we have farmers doing just that. So in the deserts of Egypt, we have farmers operating. Um, and of course, I'm blanking on other desert regions right now, but we we absolutely have um, folks in really harsh climates that don't support traditional agriculture using this as a method for growing. Yeah. So like since its inception, I've kind of been wondering, like, how has Freight Farms uh, been growing? Um, as you mentioned, like these farms like in Egypt and the desert regions, and then how have you tried been incorporating like environmental justice into that and kind of making sure that everyone has this accessibility to this uh, really cool uh, ag tech. There are so many ways that we could talk about this. So I'm first going to talk about our customers because when it comes down to it, we are just, Freight Farms is just the technology provider, right? It's what people are doing with our farms that are actually uh, kind of bringing our mission to life. Um, and they've actually kind of opened our eyes to so many other applications of this technology and how it can serve different communities. We have customers using the technology to promote food equity, to create jobs for marginalized communities, to foster you know, therapeutic environments um, for recovery and self-growth. I would, I would love to shine the light on how they are really making big moves within like in, environmental justice and, and food justice movements. They're, they're absolutely incredible, whether that's our nonprofits um, or our for-profit farms that have like these very philanthropic uh, facets of their business. So they are truly incredible. And I um, would love folks to check out our website and our case studies. And then to your question about accessibility of our technology, because the cost of our farm is pretty significant. It's $150,000 and not everyone just has that laying around by any means. So we have you know, been working in a few different capacities with financial institutions to provide like easy access to financing. Um, it's still, especially in today's economy, a bit difficult. But there are a few other routes that folks can take. I would say education and nonprofit organizations have um, really incredible options, either through donors or through um, grants um, and different like government funding. Um, that's typically the way that people finance these, especially if they have uh, big missions of how they're going to be using this technology. For example, we have um, multiple boys and girls clubs, uh, specifically in the the Boston, uh, greater Boston area that have received funding from, you know, Beth Israel Hospital to own and operate these farms. Um, and also just like government grants, especially during COVID um, that we're looking to help improve food security. So it's it's a work in progress for sure and and helping kind of identify donors for these potential organizations or create awareness so more people know about this so it's easier to get funding or financing. So it's it's definitely a long process especially with such a novel product um in today's economy but we're we're absolutely working on it. Where do most people find 
the labor for these. And then they also need, there's ongoing costs, of course. And you, do you have to buy all specialized plants because it needs a hydroponic farm or can you just buy seeds from wherever? How does that all work? Sure. Um, so our for-profit farmers, so those like entrepreneurs that are starting their own small business, typically run it themselves until they scale up to enough farms where they need to hire labor. But it's only about 25 hours per week. So typically one to two people can manage up to three farms. For organizations and you know schools and universities, students. Anna is That's a perfect right. example of that. <laughs> Um, and you know, this is where we see, uh, that it's more than just a farm and it's more than just the food that comes out of the farm. There's so many other benefits. And a lot of the time, these organizations and schools are buying the farms for something other than the food. It's all about the experiential learning, um, and the job training and the, you know, hard and soft skill development, um, so that's pretty incredible. So it's it's not only labor for students, it's also beneficial and, and resume building as well. And then your question about seeds or special plants, anything, any type of seed um, can grow in this, in this farm. We don't have one particular seed that we recommend. A lot of our farmers use Johnny Seeds, um, which is a fantastic, reputable brand. But as the industry also evolves uh, and hydroponic vertical farming becomes a little bit more um, mainstream and prominent, we definitely see seed companies uh, developing kind of new seed technology to um, kind of adapt better to these types of environments. As the technology develops, usually there's all this stuff that develops around it, including new seeds for vertical farming. That's really, that's really cool. I'm sure Anna can attest to the interesting experience of working in a container farm and all the great benefits she got out of that. <laughs> Um, beyond just, um, you know, learning about a container farm. Yeah, for sure. It was definitely like that uh, one thing everyone was looking forward to, like on their study breaks, they could like go to the freight farm and then we everyone would be uh, so proud in the halls and they're carrying little bags around of like stuff they harvested from the farm. So yeah. definitely great advertising that way through the school community. And it's great to hear how much like the great farms has been expanding. That's cool. Oh yeah. I just have one question. Mm -hmm. um, this is kind of relating back to like after like the farm has been bought I was kind of wondering if you could elaborate on your relationship with like with your customers if that goes to kind of expanding like with uh farm maintenance or like supplying like nutrient water and or trainings and stuff like that definitely so after um someone purchases our technology in our farm we don't say see you later because this is a massive piece of equipment that involves um quite a bit of understanding before you can get started so we offer a variety of different training options. Typically, we host groups here in Boston. We call it Farm Camp. But there are other options either for online learning um, or we come to your farm location to help you get your farm up and running and train you there. Uh, and then we provide ongoing support as well. So via email, via phone. Um, but I would say our, our largest resource would be our you know, knowledge base and community platform. So our knowledge base is basically like the Wikipedia of freight farms. It's a searchable platform and we've got hundreds and hundreds of articles on there of anything that you may or may not need to troubleshoot. And then we say that the, the best resource that you can leverage as a farmer is other farmers. Uh, so on our community platform, you have um, the ability to get in touch with anyone 
in our entire network, which spans 41 different countries across the globe. So people share their learnings, their learnings, their failures, uh, what they're what they're growing. Um, people ask questions. Uh, the camaraderie in there is is pretty incredible. So we we love to kind of shine the the light on our community and how um, how special they are. That's very cool. I'm sure it's a really unique community community of people that really can benefit a lot from talking with each other about what's going on in their own farm and sharing those successes and challenges. So that's really great. So to wrap up, I always ask our guests to just tell me what is capturing your attention this week. It can be anything at all. It doesn't have to be related to farming. <laughs> you know, when you had asked this question, I actually immediately went to farming news yeah. <laughs> um, in okay. my own personal sphere. Sure. So I was in Maine this past weekend and obviously we're approaching fall. So one of our favorite activities um, is to visit this local orchard. And we showed up and there's a sign on the door that it is closed for the year because of the major frost that hit in uh, May. So it's it was just very sad. Um, and yeah. I think it's applicable to, to conversations um, today. And then depending on when this podcast airs, like we have been seeing a lot of different extreme climate news uh, over the past couple of weeks, which is very really true. devastating. So. Uh, there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, solutions that are out there that hopefully can help, but we have a lot of work to do. So that's kind of very top of mind right now. It hit me on a personal local scale yeah. this weekend. <laughs> that's very true. I was actually thinking about the upcoming apple picking season recently, and that makes me wonder if I'll be able to be able to do that because maybe the farm that I typically go to, I'll have to double check and see if they're okay. if they're available um, and have apples to pick. That's yeah, that brings to like kind of brings it full circle here because I feel like Freight Farms is here to weather the proverbial storm and like the climate does impact a freight farm, I'm sure, but it can be managed in the interior and you can still get your fresh produce grown, even if you have a hard frost, even if you have um, a really hot summer, because you can manage that interior environment, albeit with some energy and water inputs, but it can be managed and get yeah. food to people that need it. Exactly. We are one one piece of the, the puzzle. One piece of the puzzle. Can't grow an apple in there quite yet. Maybe many, many apples, but. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it and uh, look forward to keeping my eye on freight farms and your success. Thank you. Thank you both so much. And many thanks to Anna for reaching out and bringing freight farms to my attention. I appreciate that you were able to pull this together, Anna. Of course. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Caroline of Freight Farms. Many thanks to EBC summer intern Anna Wilcox for setting up today's conversation. Farming in a shipping container is clearly an efficient way to bring fresh produce to communities that lack the infrastructure to grow in traditional fields, and it's really fascinating to learn more about the management of energy and water through hydroponics. You will find links from the discussion in the show notes, as well as a link back to the EBC website, ebcne.org. Please like, rate, and review. Your interaction with the podcast really helps get the word out more widely. Join me again in two weeks for a conversation with Jeff Lafada Hernandez about disability, ableism, and advancing access and equity. Energy Environment Economy is a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. Thank you to EBC Administrative Coordinator Stephanie Sukar for editing the episode and managing the branding and marketing, and to EBC intern Anna Wilcox for her wordsmithing. Music is only forward by Roman Senec Music 2023.